ones. Back to ones. Reset. Everyone back to ones. Now we're cut. Everyone back to ones. Okay, here we go. Everyone in ones. Here we go. D. You and I had the amazing pleasure, honor, excitement, excitement, joy, thrill yep. of being a part of Georgia's first state of the industry event at Trillith Studios last week. Yeah, when Frank invited us out, we were very excited to see what was going on. They had a great lineup of speakers, different sessions. Uh, we also got to tour some of their new facilities. Of course, we had a great time meeting other filmmakers who were just there in attendance. So, you know, Frank Patterson, who runs Trillith, who's also, you know, been a dear friend of yours for a long time. For like oh, almost over half my life. I was going to say, you can like kind of credit him with a lot of your filmmaking journey. Yeah, I mean, he's a great filmmaker, great entrepreneur, great educator. And now he's the CEO of the second largest film studio in North America. And if you go there to Trillith Studios, you see how much they have planned and they're building and expanding. I mean, every Marvel movie you've probably ever seen and television show is shot there. You're talking about Ant-Man. You're talking about the Spider-Man films that just came out. You're talking Wakanda, both Wakandas, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very important film for us to talk about this month. And... Also, they're doing a lot of television shows, other movies, um, and expanding into the digital world. I think Francis Ford Coppola is now mm-hmm. shooting in the yep. volume there. Yep. So it's just really great to see what he's built. And he's been really informative for me as a filmmaker, but also as a leader and as a person uh, in this industry, mm-hmm. as a thought leader, um, someone that I really try to emulate when I'm working with people. The thing that also inspires me about Frank, I mean, like you said, the way he works with people, he's such a like loving, kind, warm person, but also to him, um, he's been so clear about story being at the heart of things and that your job, so a quote he said that day, the human brain needs story to survive as much as the body needs oxygen. And I think for Mm. him, you know, this is obviously a huge endeavor and these are huge sort of commercial properties that you listed off, but he's also someone who is working in this studio is, you know, I think alongside of him working to nurture the voices of artists. And, um, you know, we heard him about a week later at the screening of 1982, encouraging another young filmmaker, telling her that not only should she like have the courage to pursue telling the story that she's wanting to tell from her community and her life. He's like, this is your purpose for being here on earth, your voice, what you have to share. This is why you were placed here in this moment, in this time with this skill set. Um, and I think like that is not someone who's getting up there and just talking dollars and cents. This is someone who is talking right. culture, who is talking art and value and purpose. And it just made me so excited to be involved here. And I just think that's so wonderful to hear and to see that he's building this up. And I, I would love, you know, for you to talk about too, the types of people that he brought to be a part of these panels at the State of the Industry, um, the different yeah. backgrounds of people, particularly like in the writing one and, and the storytelling. Man, it was an incredible, incredible event. And for me as someone, you know, with you, like we have original IP, we have content that we're in process of developing that we want to get made. And so to hear some of the things that people were talking about. So kind of top down from Frank about creativity and story um, being part of our human identity and survival. Right. Um, But then they're all really talking about trying to get original IP here and uh, here in Georgia, in Atlanta. Uh, Lee Thomas was talking about how writer's room and animation counts for the tax incentives. And I think that that's really great to know. So they're wanting to get writer's rooms set up here, based here. So it's not just you know, shows are being written in LA or New York and then being shipped out here for production. Um, But we can host writers' rooms here and get that tax incentive. And, you know, you think about a band writing a a song, right, or their album. They always go off to, like, this new location. Yeah, like the cabin in the woods. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Or And if you're from the woods, maybe you go to this really cool studio in Brooklyn because that's taking you out of Charlottesville or whatever. Like, and... What usually happens is it's like art that that could only have existed um, because everybody was living in a barn together. Um, and there's so many different locations here in Georgia, particularly in the different types of things that you're trying to write. I mean, if the whole writer's room is on this like two-month writer's retreat 
and this amazing location um, are just across the street from the studio if they want to be. Because when you go and visit Trillith, they're across the street. They've created this village, and it's got this really interesting... It feels like you're in like the Shire a little bit, but also <laughs> you turn the corner, maybe you're in a downtown cobblestone place. But they have these wonderful walkways and, and a lake and and these little streams and and like design play gyms and dog parks. And I just think, wow, if if you were coming together as a writer's room, getting away from New York, getting away from LA, even getting away from downtown Atlanta, if you think about it, and just spending that time really coming up with story together, like you're putting together that those great albums. I think that's something great. And to find out that, yes, that is a part of the tax incentive, or even better, you know, finding the writers here. We're here, state. if anyone's wondering. We're definitely here. The Wrens are here. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Jermaine Johnson from Three Arts said, the only difference between New York, LA, and Georgia is that Georgia needs a better publicist. That's like, right. There's great locations here. There's great artists here. There's, you know, great talent. There's crew. There's everything you need. There's tax incentives. Yeah, and then I, I believe, like, after that particular talk, um, was that when we were invited to see the volume? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, everyone's been talking about the volume. I mean, if you watch Mandalorian, you've probably seen the shots of the character sitting on this LED wall and there's no green screen. But, you know, for us in the visual effects world, it's like green screen is one of those things that you feel like is just a part of life, but it actually takes away from all the things you feel like you can do because you're thinking, okay, where's the green screen? How do I find the track points? Oh, I can't have a character have this sort of outfit or that color clothing. Uh, oh, tell your actors to act at the thing. There's there's lava over there, everybody. Ah. And then you have this incredible volume that was built on Unreal Engine. And of course, people who work in this already know about this. But I think from those of us who are walking in and just seeing the size of it and how it, how it's movable and you can put all these different things in there, and then it just it feels like you're just back to acting again and playing again. See, next okay, look. let me describe this for non-tech people who've never seen anything like what you're talking about. Oh, wow. You walk into a giant warehouse space. It's like a huge room, big warehousey room. And you look around, and you can kind of tell their screens because you know you're in a warehouse and you're not outside. But it looks like you're in the rainforest. And it's all around you. The, the you know, sides of the walls, above you, ceiling. There's movement. There's, like, wind blowing through the leaves. And there's birds flying overhead. And, and then all of a sudden, the whole room now is a kingdom. And you look around, and, and it's, like, castles and creatures on the ground. And um, so that's great for actors, right? So now you're not acting on a green, you know, blanket behind you. You're acting within a space and within a set. Um, but what's also amazing, not only does it not have to be recreated in post, which is complicated, but like they had a motorcycle on set, oh, which yeah, is a really true. reflective object. So if you have a motorcycle and it's just reflecting plain green in the background, it messes up the color, but also then you have to go in and animate whatever would be reflected into it later on top of it. So now any reflective surface, you just have the actual reflection of the world around you. It's automatically there. Um, but the most maybe mind-blowing thing to me was that it also it it has kind of sensors. Yeah, because when we walked in, we saw these like it looked like little GoPros, but they weren't GoPros. And it was just like all around the space. So I was like, why do we have all these like GoPro looking things? And then they had, you know, obviously the camera itself had this like hat on it with all these balls coming off mm -hmm. of the camera. And of course that allows it where the sensors see the GoPros in the camera and then you can have the parallax. Cause you know, usually when you look like in the forest and you move your head left and right, the trees in front of you move faster than the trees behind. And that gives you this feeling where you can like reveal something from around a tree when you look around the tree. Well, you need something to track to do that. And they had the trackers on the camera, but then they also were able to put trackers on objects. And so they had this one scene when we met the visual effects artist who created it. It was this Cambodia night scene, like this Cambodian temple. And if you held the tracker, which they were using a, a, a torch lantern, uh, or a lantern, mm -hmm. yeah, and you could use it, it would actually 
project light onto the 3D environment as if you're walking through mm-hmm. a cave. and The ha- glow would travel yeah. with the actor carrying the light. But it's not a light. It's not a lantern. It's, it's a prop. It's you know, it's prop. not lit. But it reveals light as if it, it was actually sensors. a lantern. It was mind-blowing. It was incredible. You know, I think of it as a virtual backlot, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously you want to think, oh, I can really turn this into a space to shoot my alien film. But also you can say, I can make this Paris you know, put some practical sets in front, but at least in the background, the distance, I have a breathing Eiffel Tower, not just like a matte painting of one. It's like it can twinkle at night if you need it to, like the real one does. Or you could have, you know, um, like they had the rainforest. And those are the types mm-hmm. of things where you can just shoot all day. Shifts with time of day, shifts with seasons. Exactly. With, yeah, you don't have to like have, you know, night shoots. No. You just turn at night and, the, and, then <laughs> and you can go home and have dinner with your family. Yeah. Coming back off of that, and just hearing about what they were doing in terms of, you know, bringing in local filmmakers, talking about local producers and and local storytellers, um, as well as bringing in the technology people. I mean, they had the people from Epic Games there saying that they're a part of the the infrastructure of building out what's happening here in Atlanta was absolutely incredible. I loved what Adama Ibo said Um she said, so many people BS their way into high positions in this industry. Why can't it be you? And it's so true, right? Mm-hmm. We like, And I understand, like, you know, we got to say it funny. We got to say BS our way. But also, it's just about having confidence. It I, is. It we is. keep moving the goalposts for ourselves. We imagine, um, at least I do. And I'm sure Tina me does. Me too. Oh, my gosh. Every day, you're like, well, let me just get six more things perfect. Yeah. And I'll put myself out there. Yeah. That confidence to walk in and say, hey, you know, Someone's done it before. They were also human beings. They weren't aliens. And if as I, far as we know. As far as we know. There hasn't been a proof. <laughs> a really awesome way that uh, anyone listening with any connections to Georgia can face their own imposter syndrome head on. They made a really exciting announcement, which is that they're doing a Georgia blacklist. You can find it on the blacklist website, and it's a special program for Georgia writers. Uh, you have to like live in Georgia or have lived in Georgia or have gone to school in Georgia, have a Georgia-specific story. Um, but if basically, if you have any relationship to Georgia, you can apply with your script to the Georgia blacklist um, and be considered for you know, some really amazing opportunities, mentorship, funding, and, and, you know, building great communities. So I remember hearing about the Blacklist years ago. I think it was a TED Talk mm-hmm. I saw and just being inspired about, you know, the number of filmmakers who just don't have a chance or have a great script. But for whatever reason, this office didn't want it. For whatever reason, the star they were attached to didn't take it. But it's still an amazing script. And now that we're in this world where people are genuinely looking for new voices because there's so many streaming services that are looking for new shows and new stories to tell. And they're looking for places that aren't the same locations in L.A. and the same locations in New York. They want stories that are written for different places with different people. Um, And I think, you know, if you're writing stuff for Georgia or you're from Georgia, even if it's not a Georgia-specific thing, but it has your sentiments, you know, hey, apply. I think, what, is next few months, right? They're giving it six months. Yeah, there's some time. So get your your materials in order, but... um... But yeah, it's a really cool opportunity. Well, that was our recap of the state of the industry. And we're going to keep talking about stuff at Trilith. We got a lot more stuff coming up. I just saw some great sneak peek animations that people were doing that we may or may not talk about in a few weeks. Say, I don't know. Can you talk about it? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but it's some really cool stuff going down. And of course, we talked about this uh, last episode. But this week, we have a very special guest with uh, Sam Benjamin. Sam Benjamin. So we're going to jump right into that interview, hear about what he talks about being an independent filmmaker and actor, you know, started from the bottom, now we're here type of feel. (laughs) And it's been really great hearing about, you know, what it's like to be in London, some of the things he's up against there uh, that sometimes we here in the States don't even understand the nuance of that is very clear when you're from London. And also hearing about his favorite films and, um, and also how he and Tina met, which uh, is always a fun story. Yeah. Yeah, so. Tune in. Okay, here we go. Back to your ones. Everyone back to your ones. 
How are we doing? Good. Finally. You. I know. Glad we can make it happen. How is LA treating you? Like really well. Uh, yeah, uh, it's coming up to a year. Wow. And yeah, it's uh, that's that's kind of cool. But yeah, I'll absolutely, definitely for me, like where I'm at, um, it was like so the right move. Okay. So, what brought you out there? Can you tell me the story about how you decided to move? I feel like whenever I'm sure you guys, because you guys have moved not too uh, long ago to a new place, so. There's always a lot of life stuff as well, obviously. Yeah. But um, but essentially, I was, you know, I, I'm from Liverpool in the north of England, which is a quite working class town. Not many actors, not much entertainment industry, apart from like the music history with the Beatles, obviously. Right, right. Um, but yeah, essentially, um, so it was like a fight from like day one. And then uh, so I went to a drama school in London, graduated from there. And then essentially, I did 11 years in London as a, as a working actor doing British TV um you know some good stuff yeah um, but at the same time like the pattern was uh like one episode or a couple of scenes in good stuff and never any more than that so it, after a while i was like uh, and then um i came over to la did a little networking thing and then was getting like reactions that i never got in england in terms of people going oh you're this guy and then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I've been saying. Yeah, that's so great. <laughs> I went over there. I remember when I went over there, like a, uh, a casting director was like, one of the first American casting directors was looking at my resume and she was like, wow, you're a leading man and they're casting you as like as like guest character roles. I don't know what that's about. And then I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Um, but then obviously, obviously you got an element of like, you know, the reputation is that America is, you know, the American mentality is much more like upbeat and, you know, it's like, yeah, it's all great. You look great. It's great. Everything's great. Whereas in Britain, everyone's just a bit more like blunt. But, um, sure. But yeah, it was like a long, it, I kind of came over here 2016 and then it planted the seed. And that was like around the time just after I did film Justice League. Um, and then just felt like I was getting pulled over there. And then, um, like my dad died in 2017 quite suddenly, which gave me a kick up the arse to go, hey, what are you waiting for? Like, so what? Even if you go over there and it's crap, it's an adventure. Right. So, and it's like a pattern, isn't it? There's a lot of British actors that have come over here. Yeah. And you know, we can get into the, the, the reason why, but, you know, the likes of Idris Elba or Damien Lewis and people like that. And there's a lot of classism in Britain. I, right. I, I'd say a lot of people would say that, like, classism is on the level of American racism in Britain. That's our ancestral pain that carries through in the sense of, you know, it's centuries and centuries of king, you know, God, king, upper class, and then who the fuck are you at the bottom? I'm from a working class town. I don't think I particularly look rough or low class, but for certain roles, e.g. The Crown, Downton Abbey, things like that, someone like me, is like disregarded from wow. a lot of those roles, even though, you know, I come up here in America, it's like, oh my God, like I could so see you in this. And I'm like, yeah, but they look at it and they go, even if you can do the accent and do whatever, they're like, oh, he's from Liverpool. Oh, well, we'll keep him in mind for, you know. Wow. Those kind of, so there's a little bit of that. Um, and then, yeah, it's just, you know, in life, isn't it? Follow, following the instincts and working out. Ameri I grew up more on American movies and TV. Sure. Like my family, like my my nan, my grandmother, and my dad. It was like I didn't realize till like later in my life that when they're gone, you're like, oh my god, no wonder what I'm obsessed. Right. Every every even though they were not in the industry or whatever, like they could have been and they should have been. And they, you know, watching old Hollywood with my nan on a Tuesday, and she used to tell stories about when she would. Um, it was just after the war, and she said we th there was like ten picture houses on one street. Oh. And when she was a teenager, her and her girlfriends would go. They'd wait at this place where all the American pilots would land. <laughs> <laughs> they would, this is so cool, and and they would they would flirt with them, and, and and get them get them to um, get them to give them uh, cigarettes and Wrigley's chewing gum, which at the time like wasn't in England. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. And yeah. then they would take the cigarettes and the chewing gum and go to the cinema and spend all day watching movies, hiding under the seats, staying for the next movie. What are some actors and movies that like 
you know, when you were younger that you really remember that you still watch again and again? Uh, I guess, I mean, there's a combination of I had like an old Hollywood from my nan. So I guess that's kind of like Gene Kelly singing in the rain, that kind of thing, uh, or even like old cowboy movies um, and The Wizard of Oz and like lots of those grand like technicolor movies. Um, and then from my dad, I got a lot of Saturday night was like, we're watching Predator, then Demolition Man. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, dad, I'm 10 years old. And he's like, <laughs> in terms of actors, I always think of Jack Nicholson. He's like one of my all time, all time. He was my dad's favorite. Mm. Uh, uh, and that was a funny thing. Cause one of the big, it's my affectionate favorite movie of all time. Uh, Tim Burton's Batman from 1989. Oh, yeah. Yes. And I think it just so happened that it just tapped into so many elements of my future self in terms of, like, I'm a big music guy. I love Prince. You've got the Prince soundtrack. You've got the Danny Elfman score. You've got the, like, the, the, the character of Batman's always fascinated me. And then you just happen to have who I think are two of the – the, the greatest actors ever in Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton. Yes. People like Jack Nicholson and I'd go, doesn't matter what movie this guy's in, why can't I take my eyes off him? Yes. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, what is that je ne sais quoi? Um, so he, he's one. There's, there's some really exciting filmmakers coming out now. And people like Jordan Peele. Right. The kind of filmmakers where you watch their film and you go, he's on that level of yes. artistry in terms of, the framing, the color, the shot choices, the moments, the timing, like ever the lighting, I think. Um, Tying into you, like how does all of this love of film and love of these genres and these filmmakers influence what you've recently done with The Payday? Uh, so The Payday, uh, which is uh, <laughs> the heist crime caper movie that's coming out November 11th in America uh, on digital VOD. Um, and December 12th in the UK. Um, originally, it was born out of a short film that Carla Fry, who's the co, uh, co-creator of it, um, who's a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. uh, a great actress. And it was the classic actor thing of we met Damon and Affleck like many years ago. Uh, sure. And, and we, we were going, similar to what I was saying before about the British, feeling that like, oh, come on, Britain, like, I can do these kind of roles. Can you give me a shot? It's a, again, like, give me a shot, damn it. You know, yeah, right, right. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, you don't have to give me it. Just let me have a shot at it. You know, let me take a swing. Um, so, and she felt the same. And as well, we had, she, I think she had a similar taste um, in terms of what she grew up on. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about characters that we'd love to play. Just, you know, when you just visualize and you're like, okay, forget about what's in front of you. What characters would you would we love to play? And we we both adore the crime caper genre, and we felt like this was years ago, probably about twenty fourteen. We both felt like at the time that a lot of movies had lost that combination of uh, kind of which which we felt was happening a lot in the nineties, where it was yeah. um, it was kind of like it was romantic and steamy, but also. It, it had humor in it as well and it and it wasn't it, it wasn't so earnest whereas we felt like oh now it's like a movie is either super earnest like this is hardcore you know um high stakes drama emotion but then it didn't have the laughs and then or there was silly movies that were just all laughs whereas we were thinking of and also just as so we were thinking of films like oceans 11 and out of sight um and even set it off and things like that, where it's um, that classic, also that element of that working class kind of F right. to the circle of going, right, we've had enough here. It's time to take power into our own hands and take the risk. Um, so anyway, so we arrived at a couple of characters and we started brainstorming. And then long story short, we made it into a short film. We shot it in a hotel in one day with Sam Bradford, the director, who at the time was doing a lot of commercials. Gotcha. Um, and then, and he he had that great, it was a great marriage because Kyla and I were bringing the, the character stuff and that uh, I was bringing like the screenwriter kind of detail. But then Sam Bradford was from a different world where everything was visual. Gotcha. And it was about, it was about the frame and it was about the lighting and it was about 
the glossiness of it and uh, you know being our you know the, this whiskey brand doesn't doesn't really care what the script looks like on the page it's like does that look does our whiskey in that bottle look absolutely awesome um yeah sure so, um, so yeah so we did that short and then that was 2015 it got into a few festivals um we you know we did it all ourselves we put on a premiere we treated it like it was like a like a full movie um and then and then fast forward, we've done many different things since then. And and then I think to just bring it back, we we were pitching it here and there. We were in Britain, there's a lot of like different schemes of like, oh, if you've got a low-budget film under this amount, you know, apply to the government, apply to BAFTA, apply to Creative England, blah, blah, blah. And we just never really got any play. And then eventually, because I think the three of us were still doing well, but we weren't, you know. It was like 2019, I, I did a, a great like guest character in BBC's War of the Worlds, and it was a wonderful, like really great, one of the you know best scenes that I, I got the opportunity to do. Um, but at the same time, you're like, oh, come on, like I'm still still want that, you know, this kind of role or whatever. Right. So essentially, but then a combination of factors, and then Sam Bradford, the director, he was obviously feeling the same and he came to me. This is my version of the story. He sat Kyle and I down and he said, right, how are we going to get this film made? And we go as a feature film and we're like, um, well, maybe we can apply for this. Maybe we can do this or send it to so-and-so. And then eventually, and then he just went, okay, we could do that or we could just make it ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly and, then, and that set the ball rolling. And then obviously, fast forward, yeah, um, Sam Bradford did a lot of work, um, you know, appealing to people who had seen his work in the commercial world, music videos and things like that. And he got some private financing. um, And he's got a company called Praxima that are like a, they they has, they are a crew of people with equipment that they've gathered over the years and they wanted to get something done. So it all came together and then and yeah it was still pretty like crazy because i was waiting for my green card to come through this was 2020 and i was kind of just in the queue so to speak and I'm like, well at some point i'm gonna have to go over to america don't know when and then and then the film kind of started rolling and suddenly we were shooting it and then at the time i remember thinking oh i'm shooting you know all these days as the as the leading man that you wanted by the way um, and then you're like oh oh no like i'm gonna have to i'm doing i'm working for free now and i thought i was gonna have so much money saved up for when i went to america <laughs> so, yeah it was like a movie in itself because i think i wrapped my character about a week and a half before i came up before i had to come to america because i've got a green card and they give you a deadline date of wow. like you have to be in the country by this day to activate the green card so it was a high stakes thing which fitted in with the film and you guys have secured some distribution can you talk about that or at least talk about maybe the process of how you achieve that yeah it's i mean it's a case of i'm uh, so i am officially an associate producer on the on the film so i'm not a proper producer on the film so um but i've kind of been you know watching and learning and essentially you know we we wrapped the film we got it in the can and it is that leap of faith isn't it where you go in well we've got a feature film in the can let's see if anyone takes it um and then essentially we partnered up with two uh, producers uh Bo Youngblood and John Irardi who um I think Sam Bradford had worked with on something else or was working on something else and they they just had their first feature made called Safer at Home and that got onto Hulu. Great. Um, and it was made on a super low budget. And and so they had a relationship with a few, you know, they've been doing the rounds and they're making more things now. So they have, and they were f- basically floated the film to certain people. And then uh, Vertical Entertainment, the distributor, um, was one of the first ones that looked at it. And they were just like, yeah, we're definitely interested. And then began the process of, you know, all these things that take time as well, because it's like, okay, great, they're interested. And then, you know, weeks go by, emails back and forth, what's the plan? And then even then, we didn't really know what was going to happen, you know, uh, in terms of where's it going to be out, when's it going to be out, how's it going to be released, all that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, that's that's kind of how it, that sounds really easy, doesn't it? But essentially, (laughs) it's kind of about... um, gathering the right people and yeah um, yeah but i think that that's the 
obviously you've got the one way of kind of self-publishing or just putting it out there, as you guys know. But, you know, when you do a feature, I think it does have more gravitas in terms of, oh, you've got a feature. And I think we are in a, uh, for all the problems of, or, you know, unfairness or injustice of the world and the industry, I think we are in a great time in terms of, for creators, I do think we are. Because right. um, the like 30 years ago, it would have been like, how do we, we have to get this to, we have to persuade what, like a studio? Yeah. We have to right. persuade, like, we've got Warner Brothers, we got, you know, we got, <laughs> we got Warner Brothers, we got Disney, we got, you know, whoever, whoever. And then you go, okay, uh, do you want it? Do you want it? And they'll be like, no. <laughs> right. And then that'd be that. And then what, what would you do? You'd, you'd, you'd invite your friends to a screening and play it on, you know, put it on the projector. Um, so you could have even um, gotten a camera to make it to begin with. Yeah, like back it, then. You know, so it would have been super expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, you heard, I heard you earlier you talk about being a screenwriter. You know, you said the screenwriting uh, was something that you knew well. And I wanted yeah. to know if you could talk that about That was quite that. arrogant, wasn't it? That was quite. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> it's one of those things where a lot of times, you know, we think as actors, um, or I would talk to people, not us. Obviously, we know a lot of actors. Tina's a fantastic writer, too. But a lot of yeah. times, you know, the world wants to say, oh, you're an actor. And then they kind of put you in a box. Um, but obviously, you do know screenwriting. And I want to know a little bit about how you got into writing. Was it something that you were also doing in parallel? Is it something that you started to do because you wanted to act more? Uh, can you tell me more about the genesis of that? One of the moods I've been coming back to with this, because people have been asking me, is I think I started writing because I was angry. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and essentially, I would say what happened was I graduated from drama school. You know, in again, in Britain, it's like, it's still kind of the thing that if you want to be an actor, you train at a drama school first, and then you grad and you don't work till you graduate, and they give you permission and say, you are now ready darling so (laughs) so i i graduated in 2009 from drama studio london and i you know obviously some people came out of drama school and after a month were like well where's spielberg hasn't called me what right yeah sure uh this isn't what i so um i wasn't like that but at the same time i was confident and um i got a theater job straight out which is really cool um and then i think i got my first tv job 2010 on BBC's Doctors and Medical Daytime Drama. and uh, But then after that, it was kind of like, oh. And then I think it was about 2011, 2012. And, you know, I was starting to have a few ideas and, you know, you have time on your hands. And then it, it was a case of like, oh, and then if I write something, I could be in it. And, and also there was, I think at the time, because I started writing plays initially, mm-hmm. I think at the time I was looking at, what plays were getting made and it and it particularly whenever there was something in the north of England or in in my hometown and I felt like every time there was something like that it was like it was written by someone who's never been there oh. wow and I was like what and especially like you know the north of England was always this is my version of it but you know even on a BBC drama or whatever there was just a sense in my mind that every time the north of England was I don't know if Americans even you know, perceive this difference. But in the north of England, whenever there was a drama up there, it was kind of like, it was like everything was a bit crap. It was like everyone was, it was a bit grey and yeah. everyone's having an affair or or has an unwanted pregnancy on the council estate and everyone's miserable. And there's, you know, it's just, there's no levity or joy in it. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, in the in the home city I grew up in, the hometown I grew up in, you know, a lot of people don't have much money, but actually they have more fun than a lot of people with money. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, so that was, yeah, so that was, and even just the, the types of people that were represented in it. Um, but anyway, so there was a lot of that that went into it. Yeah, and then I just started. And the Lyric Hammersmith Theatre was, was really good to me, and they did a playwriting programme with Simon Stevens, who's a... Nice. Ma- I don't know whether you know Simon Stevens yet. Um, he's incredible. And Bola Agbaje as well. Them too. It was like a tag team 12-week course, I think, in writing. Um, and that gave me confidence. And it was really like, oh, okay. Um, and then now, yeah. And then so I just started writing a few plays. I got a few stage readings of the lyric. And then, and then I gravitated towards tackling screenplays because 
in the end, like I didn't watch theater till I was like 18 anyway. So it was like, once I started getting into screenwriting, I was like, oh, this is more my vibe and this is a language that I grew up watching. And then, yeah, and then it just went from thing to thing. And then obviously the, I always describe myself as an actor first. And, but it's funny, I think, you know, you go back and I look at, I read a lot of biographies. I look at how my, my heroes, uh, you know, followed their journey. And, you know, Jack Nicholson case in point, he, if you go on his IMDb and scroll all the way down, he's got credits as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Roger Corman, the low-budget movie maker, was like, he, he says, like, he's the only guy that would give me a part. He'd say, yeah, I'll give you this this amount of money, write me a script, and I'll give you a supporting role in it. Um, and you, you go back to the Damon Affleck and Stallone and even, like, Michaela Cole recently or, you know, um, it's it's like a thing that, you know, sometimes if it's not quite working or, you know, you've, you've got to create it yourself. And for me, yeah, I've just been a type that a lot of times I'm told people don't know what to do with. They're like, one of the first agents I ever met fresh out of college, you're adorable, but there's nothing I can do with you. You're too young to be old, but you're too old to be young. And uh, That's a good character, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right? I should uh, do something with that. But yeah. just, a moment for me, it was so funny. And I, I just sort of like... Smile was like, cool. I mean, the great thing in New York is people will tell you, like, that's a hard no. I know she doesn't want to work with me. (laughs) um, Then an agent who I did work with for a while when I was in New York, um, her thing, and she did um, work with me, which was great. But she, Mm. she goes, you're not right for much, but what you're right for, you're really right for. But it has inspired me to write because it's the only thing I can control, you know, us as actors. Yeah. I think it's very empowering to be able to do that. And also, I mean, your story resonates for me. I grew up in the inner city in in Pittsburgh and I used to get so mad. Every urban high school (laughs) drama was like, everybody's just shooting each other and pregnant moms and depressed and sad and shooting up drugs in the class. And it's like, some like, did I have, some of that sure happened, happened, you know, but like also yeah. we did musical theater and laughed a lot and we're silly and we're high schoolers and fell in love and like all of that stuff. Yeah. And, and to your, it's so vibrant and alive and like was still to this day, one of my absolute favorite times of my life. Um, and it's important to tell those stories. I'm curious if you have any intention of, writing anymore, like specifically Liverpool or, or, you know, there is a certain, it's this weird balance, this industry of, cause I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Taurus and apparently we're like proper fixed control freaks that want to, you know, <laughs> that want to just pat, like, we're like, I'm doing it. Um, but there is a certain, there's also an energy flow in this game. Like there is in life, isn't there? And sometimes you just don't know what's going to happen. And somebody might be watching, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, to answer your question, I wrote a, I wrote a, a TV pilot called Liverpool 81 a few years ago, which won um, a British Urban Film Festival Award, which was sponsored by the BBC. And then that got me onto a, um, a, uh, a writer's, it was kind of like a writer's room without it actually being for a show. So it was like they took six writers um, who hadn't done a TV thing before. And then they we, we met at Red Planet Pictures, which is a production company in England. And we would meet and we would, we would take these scripts. And it was the process of turning our spec script into ready to rock and roll for television kind of mm. thing with a pitch and, and all that kind of stuff. So I and it was option for a bit. And Liverpool 81 is essentially probably totally, it's just unapologetically me in the sense of it's, uh, it is, it, well, it, this part isn't but because I wasn't born, but in 1981, uh, there was uh, this thing happened called the Toxteth Race Riots in Liverpool, um, where, you know, I don't want to get into all that, but you can imagine, you know, it's kind of one of those where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, police brutality and then people had enough and then it gathered and then it you know all that kind of thing but essentially it kind of it was an event that some people say defined liverpool's identity in the sense of it really made the city go you know what 
we don't even know if we think that we're English anymore. We're Liverpool or we're we're Merseyside. This is us, and you, you, the rest of you, you don't care about us, kind of thing. It was like a, it felt like a betrayal from the British government to many. Um, but anyway, but I wanted to tell that story because I felt like it. No, it, nobody really knows about it. But then I wanted to do it through fictional characters that were kind of based upon what I grew up, uh, you know, interacting with. So it was like a kaleidoscope of like six characters but it was very like it was like a working class liverpool baz lerman in the sense of nice. the character the characters sing um but they but they again to represent liverpool i thought the only way you can tell a proper liverpool story is with music so it's all music of the time nice. so it is kind of like for example when i watched the elvis movie i was like that style is kind of close to what i'd like to do so the thing is they said to me they were like hey this is really high budget (laughs) (laughs) so they go this is this is high budget um but they were like but we don't this is when i got on that program they were like but we don't mind that because people are either going to want to do this or they're going to think it's terrible so (laughs) so uh, i'm like yeah cool so that but that was kind of like a script that i did right angry and i was like you know what i don't care what anyone else wants this is what I want to see on the screen. Um, so th- I've got that Liverpool eighty one. If anyone's listening, if there's a you know, there's a wonderful producer out there listening to the podcast, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that is it's something that I'd love to go back to. Um, but you know how I've done it. But it, it is quite tricky, isn't it? Because if you're if you're constantly writing new scripts, it takes other people to go, "Hey, what? didn't you write a script? Or have you got a script about this?" And you go, "Oh yeah, I have." Um, so yeah, I, I'd love to do something like that. And I think long-term, like my, I want to have a career that's both sides of the Atlantic and I want to be able to, you know, do a leading man role in, in, in a big movie that entertains, that reaches people and inspires people, um, you know, internationally. And then with that, uh, like presence, I'd love to be able to then you know, have the ability for somebody, a, a great filmmaker like Brian De Palma to say, hey, so if Warner Brothers gives us five million, do you want to do that, you know, do you want to do that low-key, uplifting, working-class drama set in your hometown? And I'll be like, yeah, and let's bring some jobs. Let's, let's, let's bring some, because, I mean, the Batman was filmed in Liverpool, a lot of it the recent Batman movie. Um, it's a beautiful city. So I'd love to be able to, you know, give back in that way and also make that connect. And maybe, maybe one 14 year old lad or girl is, is a, is an extra for a day and sneaks off school and is on set and is like, Oh my God, it's doable. I love that. Love that that yeah. sounds amazing. We were just talking to some people yesterday and they talked about, you know, if you get through the door, you know, reach back and mm-hmm. invite someone in behind you. Yeah. And I, think, I think that sort of feeling of understanding, seeing yourself or someone like you doing something opens the door. Um, someone from your hometown, someone of a similar gen- gender or whatever uh, is yeah. super important. And I, I, the one thing you were talking about is the ex- explosion of content you know how many shows that people want to make they want to distribute and how many things that people are now open to seeing because there is a world in which you've seen the formula so much that you're they talk about netflix where you've seen everything so you're now in the k-pop you know a drama section something <laughs> and i think the more you know folks like you guys and us as well you know make our own work that's a little bit different but familiar um i think you know, people, there's going to be an audience for it. And if the audience just needs to stream it, they don't need, necessarily need to make $20 million opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then it's, you know, more odds of success. And there is one thing I want to ask you about, because we kind of talked about you putting the film together, but I didn't know if you want to talk at all a little bit about, you know, some of the summary of the movie, you know, I'm imagining if somebody listens to it and they might want to know what it's about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you uh, for, that, for that setup. Yeah, so the, I mean, the payday, like I said before, it's got that. Uh, how I'd like to describe it is, it's like a, a millennial. It's like a an old school crime caper movie, but but with millennials at the center of it. So it follows a a broke and frustrated um, uh, IT um, 
technician who um, is just not getting the breaks. She's always played by the rules. She got good grades at school. Her, you know, her mum's hairdressing business is going under the, you know, it's getting, that area is getting gentrified. She needs money. And then she gets laid off. And then, you know, company cuts and all that. And then, and then, so at the beginning of the movie, this old gentleman uh, tracks her down and says, I've got a job for you. Mm. And then, you know, she's on the application. She's got a spreadsheet of all of the, you know, keeping track of everything. She's getting nothing back. And so she goes and he basically says, listen, I want to use your computer skills. Uh, it might be a little bit naughty, this job, but it's a one-off job and uh, you're going to get paid this amount. And she's like, how much? Yeah, right. And, and then she, and then, you know, a few things happen. Yeah. yeah. And then she goes, she's like, absolutely not. No way. It's not going to happen. That's against my, oh, oh, how much? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, essentially she, uh, obviously, because otherwise we wouldn't have a movie, she decides, you know what? This isn't working. I've been doing this. I've been being conscientious. I've done what people have told me to do, and it's got me nowhere. So I'm going to change. I'm going to see what happens if I change it up. You know, let's let's do it. So then that sets her on the path of doing this dangerous job, and then she goes on the job. But obviously, things might not go to plan, sure. and other other people might also have other ideas about what this job should be and maybe they intercept that job maybe uh, a mysterious man played by myself enters the fray and puts a spanner in the works um so and it's very much so we'd like to think we, we wanted to nod to old school british and like you know michael k movies like the italian job yeah that have that british humor um but at the same time we wanted to bring a bit of that um stylish steamy sexiness from the likes of oceans 11 or one of the big inspirations was out of sight um yeah. with uh, and the two main characters are actually named after uh, yeah. the character um, Clooney and Lopez in out of sight um because they were like spiritually the two characters that we were like oh where are those characters now um yeah so we wanted to kind of take and I guess that's what I like is I like taking a I like taking a genre like a, a, a tried and true Hollywood genre and then you know giving it a bit of a a British working class, like reality spin, um, without taking away the magic, so to speak. So that is it. So it's so we so it's like a, it's like a thrill ride, but there's romance. I'm interested to see how people describe it because it is a heist movie, but it's got comedy, and there's romance in it. But it's also has got that danger of uh oh, this is high right. stakes stuff. So. You know, I first of all, I love Soderbergh. I love all the references that you have. And I also love subject matter. I think about Squid Game and these other things that are kind of speaking towards our society right now. I think we're going through a global recession. We're going through all of these big changes that are even going to get worse when your film comes out. And just having the ability to talk about, you know, what if that big job came through that can save me in this situation. Yeah. Uh, while also having a throwback to some of the things that we remember loving and having fun watching, um, you know, when you yeah. sit on the couch, pop the popcorn and just have a yeah. great ride. It's just so important. And I, and I actually see a lot of that coming back. A lot of those genres that people are going, you know, OK, we've been sad for a long time. We've been yeah. great for a long time. Let's go in and have a good time while also talking about the shit that I am dealing with financially right now. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think love it. Yeah. I was uh, and um and it's a kind of movie where I, I feel like and again we'll see how it um where it where it kind of hits but um like a a, a friend of mine um down the road um an actress friend she come I think we were meeting up and arranging a meet up or whatever and and I said oh what are you doing tonight and it was about seven o'clock and she goes oh me and my boyfriend were just chilling on the couch and we're deciding what to watch and I was like and you know they're in their late twenties early thirties. And I was like, yeah, that that is where the payday would yeah. you know, come in. It's like yeah. one of those, it's one of those like, and hopefully people who, because, you know, it's got Kyla Fry, Sam Benjamin, who aren't household names at the moment. Um, Simon Callow is in it, who's in Ace Ventura, Shakespeare in Love, um, okay. who's in The Witcher and um, Hawkeye recently. So he's like the old, the old school gravitas thing. But essentially, you know, we're, we're hoping, and I think to your point, um, Demetrius about like this new era I think 
the truth is that with all the streamers and all the way that we can watch, I think people, it's been proven that people just want to watch a good story with good characters. And you don't necessarily have to have a character that A, looks like that person who wants to watch it, or B, has done 10 movies previously that have made a hundred million dollars. So I think um, we're, we're kind of hoping that people just go, Hey, Hey, that they look at the poster. They're like, that looks, that looks cool. That looks interesting. Let me, let me look at the trailer. Oh yeah. Let's do it. You are, you have such a cool, fun concept of this, you know, old school, mm-hmm. you know, as you're talking about this crime caper, yeah. um, that people will watch it for that as opposed to just like, a character drama that like you don't know much about it you probably won't watch it i mean and that you know this is maybe sad because a lot of artists make beautiful characters and i dramas, love that and stuff. i love it and i would love to make it sometimes too but um but it is hard i'm guilty of it too when i'm scrolling through netflix like if you don't know what it is and you've got so much to choose from right why are we making the decisions we're making but i think to your point you look so fun and so specific and one that you'd be like mm-hmm. i want to go on this ride and even i think yeah. you look so great and fun and interesting that I would also, you know, even not knowing you be like, Oh, that looks fun. I want to see what those people are up to. You know? You oh, yeah. I did. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have a couple of production questions because I know there's filmmakers listening to us. Um, like how many days was the shoot uh, to put this together? I, you know what? I don't know the exact days, but roughly it was a combination. I'd say there was two elements to the shoot. There was a little bit of in the, in the opening stages, there was a little bit of, Oh my God, we've got this location. Uh, let's do, let's get those scenes boxed off. Um, so there was like, I would say, cause Kyla is basically, she's the, she's the, she's the star of the show. She was pretty much in every single scene. So in the initial month, uh, or in, as we were ramping up, I think there was, I feel like there was like two days at this place, a day at that place, a day at that place. And then there was like a bit of a period of a few weeks. And then we went hardcore into the meat and potatoes of it, which was essentially, I think, around three weeks, I think, around there. Yeah. Um, something like that. And then afterwards, there was a few like, and because the funny thing was, is that we were, um, you know, for the production people in there. So it was essentially, you know, boxing off the specific locations that are in one scene. So the hairdressing shop that's in the, you know, in that scene and that scene, and then her best mate's apartment will get those scenes done. And then the meat of the heist where the heist happens. Cause obviously we, um, we had that in mind and I had that in mind when I was crafting the screenplay, which is right. Can we write as much of it as possible in one place? nice yeah um, or at least you know it makes sense if it is a high you know kind of like the raid or um or even like the movie dread where it's like we've got a low budget so we'll spend on the costumes and you know the talent and all that or whatever it is and then because we all know it's in one tower block mm-hmm. we've got control of that place we know we've got it for this amount of time we can use that room to double up as that room the right. toilets can be on floor four but then we can fake the the, the you know the closet cupboard from this blah 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 so it was essentially like two to three weeks of like hardcore like 12 hour days doing it um in in a large area called it was like the royal albert dock um, and there was like two uh two big uh buildings next to this next to the the river thames so there was lots of different in there so yeah i think it was essentially maybe all told like four weeks maybe um, I don't want to. I want to overestimate because I don't want the director yeah. to go. You, do you not realize how many days I was there sweating? So I think it was about four weeks um, with odd days extra, and then of, and Simon Callow was cast. Yeah, I want to ask about that. Yeah, how'd that come to he be? Was, well, he was cast. He was cast. Like when we were filming the the kind of the meat of the movie, we didn't know he was going to be cast still. Um, so that was like, those were extra days on the back end. So I'd wrapped my character and then it was like two days in this, in other locations. I'm trying to protect the the surprises in the story. Um, and, and it was one of those where, and I think, I don't know whether you guys have had this experience or if filmmakers are listening, it's amazing how, first of all, like shoot for who you want to go for. 
is my advice to someone who's making a low budget film if it's especially if it's a feature film or even if it's a short if you if you've got a great vision and you've got a character that's well thought out and you right. and you clearly it's clear that you have thought about that actor and you're not just going oh we need we need someone we need someone um, send it to that 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 if you're like right so we we did think of Simon Callow early on because Sam Bradford I forget the exact connection but I think he worked with him somehow in the commercial world Oh, I see. And, and they had a good chat. And then as we were developing the story, obviously we, we were thinking of there needs to be a villain character. And then we thought, oh, and he said, you know what? I've just worked with Simon Callow. And then Kyla Fry and I are massive Jim Carrey fans. So we were like, oh, it's Ventura when nature calls. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> we were like straight away. I was like, "This is a lovely room of death." Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, and then and then he got in touch with his people, and obviously it was pragmatic because he'd worked with him before. He knew he was a nice guy. He right. seemed to like what Sam Bradford was doing as a director. So it was it was a it was a sensible move, but also it was like, oh, he would really and and he's a great. We thought he's a great contrast to. You know, the, first of all, in terms of like the gravitas of experience and his look, it's like it's hopefully that mix of. Um, you, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think, but it, you know, it is set in London and it's it's a it's a black female lead, um, and we like to think that it's got that like it, it. He represents like the old school kind of traditional what people would think of if they were if it was an American audience going, oh, let's tune into an English drama. Um, you know, very well-spoken, erudite, you know, dressed to impress kind of character. So we thought it, he'd be a great contrast to, um, yeah, to the leads. But yeah, I think that like there are different mm -hmm. reasons we make each piece, you know, and there yep. are times where I've made tons of character dramas in my body mm -hmm. of work and I had reasons why I wanted to tell those stories and, and tell them in that way. I think for you guys, your intention was like, how do I showcase myself? How do what we I show can do. we can do this? And I think if that's the goal, if that's the intention, yeah. you have to do exactly what you talked about, which is like, what am I passionate about? What do I love? What can I do really well? What do I know well? Because if I have to compete with something that might have George Clooney's face on it, like yeah. how do I make mine good enough that it is worth clicking on? So there's yeah. some really... Um, thoughtful strategy that I think depending on where you're at, if you are at a point in your life where you're like, I just need to express myself, I yeah. just need to tell this story, that then you make that in that most authentic, you know, true and vulnerable way. And if you're like, I'm at a point where I also have these other goals for this piece, thus I'm going to, on top of hopefully starting from a very authentic place, but think about these. Yeah. Other and, and you know christina you just made me think of uh there's a really cool it's on youtube uh, paul schrader who is who wrote taxi driver and many other incredible movies um he i watched this screenwriting lecture he did and i think something that might help people with exactly what you just said is that his whole writing method is you don't write literally what you know you take a problem from your life and you find an allegory and a character in a situation that's not yours that is a representation of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that can often be the freedom because you'll have the, the, the genuine um, connection to it, but also it's a character that's completely organic and fresh. Oh, yeah, audience fan questions. questions. Yeah, here we go. And uh, you can weigh in, it can be a conversation. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. But from Red Dirt, do you schedule your writing deadlines in pre production or is it just ready when it's ready? For, for the payday, uh, yes, we did. Uh, I think in, in the opening stages before things were starting to get locked, um, it, I was playing around with the script or, and obviously everyone on this one, it was like, I'm doing, we're all doing this for free. We're all waiving our fee, so to speak. So at this stage, so it was a case of, you know, the director wasn't going, uh, Sam, um, I said Monday, why is it not on my desk? It was more like, and, and actually sometimes I'd set, I'd self-impose harsher deadlines than what I actually wanted on myself. Cause it was that partly cause I was like, I don't want to let, Kyler and Sam are waiting for this. 
I don't want, uh, this isn't about me. I don't want to be indulgent writer here. You've got to get it out, get their notes, do it again, get it out, get their notes, do it again. So I would say, yeah, so he's asking, yeah, it's good to have, depends on your situation if you're, you know, right, working with friends or whatever, but it's good to have that, be friends, but also be professional and have some deadlines. That's great. That's great. All right. Yeah. I think deadlines always help me when I don't have them. I'll still sit down and write and write a lot, but even my process, sometimes like the work itself becomes meandering a little bit in an interesting way. Like, Oh, let me try this. And when you're like, Oh, I got to get it. So-and-so wants to read it Friday, you know, and whatever. Then I, you know, it's like something sharpens in my brain and all of a sudden it's just better work. I don't know if it's adrenaline or if it's whatever, but something comes into focus where I feel like a deadline. Yeah. Does That's help. true. And of course, my film school was like boot camp. Frank built a boot camp there. So I think my head is still kind of like, oh, I have a screenplay. I got to finish it in two weeks, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like like a gun. Yeah, no matter what, you write fast. Well, it's yeah. like I have this fictitious gun to my head and I'm like, no, no one's got the gun. But I guess, you know, we did that for four years in school, 20 years ago, I guess at this point. But um, it just stuck with me. So I still mm-hmm. have to make fake deadlines, uh, real ones. I don't know. But that's why you train. That's one of the benefits of going to somewhere that they've done that. And at the time you probably thought these dickheads, why are they making us do this? <laughs> and now, now it's like, it's like when, when I, my drama school, they had these kind of quirky rules where, so say you'd, you'd have your, your schedule for the week and maybe one day you, your first, <clears throat> your first class might be 10 30. Another day, your first class might be 9 a.m. Um, mm-hmm. And what they said at the beginning, they were like, you have to be in this room for red to, for registration or roll call, as you call it, for 8 45 every day. Wow. And if you don't turn up, you get a warning. And if you don't turn up three times, you're out of the school. That's how my college was too. Wow. Yeah. Like, but it, but and you know, it's 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 and I, I it's a beautiful rule. I have no problem with it because I'm I'm obsessively early for everything. But, <laughs> uh, but it but it was like it was like it was a real lesson in <clears throat> there was a method to the madness because <clears throat> when you go into the industry, it's like there is no if you're if you got your call sheet and you've got to be there for that time or you've got to be you've got to be there. And the same with auditions, it's like you know, arrive an hour early. And even if you're hovering around and find a coffee shop near the place, exactly. sit your car, right yeah, or in your car, yeah, just it's like be in control of it. Don't be, don't be, you know, don't aim to get there for the time it starts. There was a guy who I trained with uh, who actually served in the British Army in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then he went to drama school to become wow. an actor. And I was like, I was fascinated by this. I was like, dude, this is how do you go from being a soldier in a war? to to being an actor and he goes he, he's just like it's not that different mm. Mm. i was like what and he goes well you know you train you rehearse you you learn the script you plan how it's going to go you get to know your comrades and you learn how to work with them and then and then when you go on stage it's all out the window and you've just got to do it Mm. I was like, whoa, okay. Okay, next question. Um, would you like to return to the DCEU? I knew that was coming. <laughs> had to be in there, right? <laughs> Say it again, Christina. Um, no. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and it's it's funny how, uh, I don't know whether you're following, there's a lot going on at Warner Brothers at the moment, lots of shifts and changes. And um, as I'm do I get a lot of... Uh, messages uh, and DMs and comments uh, from DC fans, Snyder fans, DCU fans, relating to Green Lantern and people saying things like, oh my God, like, you're the perfect Hal Jordan and uh, are you going to be, you know, in it? I'd love Warner Brothers too. You know, I've got a vision for how they could fit you into the universe and I'm just like, hey, I don't know how to set, I don't know how to, how do you say it? it's getting that? I guess it's different from years ago, but it's like, yeah, the truth is, um, I... I, it's one of it'd be a dream because I grew up on DC and I think uh, I love you Ryan Reynolds but I think I've got a good interpretation of how Jordan that I can do <laughs> uh, and yeah it'd be incredible uh, and I'm intrigued to see how it pans out I also noticed that when I posted I posted a I don't think I, I don't think I've had you I don't know whether you're on Twitter or is active on Twitter but I posted a 
uh, a thing of saying, oh, I'm going on, uh, I'm talking to Christina Wren uh, next week or whatever. And the first comment was like that art of, um, of like Green Lantern star Sapphire, like, like, like (laughs) that. And and it was like, oh, straight off the mark. Yes. Um, You know what? who knows who knows what's going to happen i think especially with the like nowadays with with you know i think studios listening are listening to fans a lot and i ha- i'm seeing black adam on saturday so i don't know what's going to go down in that movie i've tried to avoid the spoilers but yeah essentially i'd love to and i think it'd be it'd be exactly the kind of role that you know a british guy goes to america for yeah i know what a dream story right what about you christina well, I will. I mean, yes, absolutely. I would happily return to the DCU. And you're wearing green today. I am wearing green. Oh, maybe it was uh, subconscious. Um, I should have put on some like hot pink lipstick. Here we go. Here we So that's just a snippet of our full conversation with Sam Benjamin. We have so much more that we have on the cutting room floor that we want to release for a special episode later. Tune into our podcast and subscribe so you can get that in your feed. Also, in a couple of weeks, we have a few more people that we're interviewing. Uh, Londi Maduro is coming up soon. And of course, some actors and actresses that Tina's worked with in the past. So stay tuned. Also, once again, our theme music written by Justin Portis from Delicate Minds. And our sample from Cody Gallo, who's an AD, one of my favorite people in the world. Thank you, Cody. Once.